Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. It's the end of the year, both for this podcast and for the website and for the year. And we're doing a bit of an end-of-the-year special. I'm going to welcome Omar Gayaga and Scott Gold, two of our top contributors, to talk about the highlights and lowlights of the year in TV. We cover a lot of material, so please feel free to take notes because uh, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to get a lot of recommendations of what to watch and what not to watch. But first, I'm going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about Poor Things, which is a new movie from Yorgos Latimos, the uh, strange and yet popular European director. It stars Emma Stone as a Frankenstein lady who uh, discovers herself in a in a steampunk Victorian world, and it is well worth your time, and it's well worth talking about because it's a very complex film uh, in some ways and a very simple film in others, and Stephen will be here to talk with me about it right after this interlude. I am finding being alive fascinating. <laughs> oh. There's been a lot of talk about how there's no more sex in movies. Um, I say sex very emphatically because it is sex after all. But if you've seen um, Saltburn and May, December and some other films recently, there may be actually be a return of sex in movies. And the sexiest sex movie of the year is Poor Things, which is a new comedy from Yorgos Lathimos, which has uh, recently hit theaters. And Stephen Garrett wrote about Poor Things for us on the site. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hello. Yes. So much sex in this movie. My God. Yeah. Just endless sex. (laughs) Not sexy, but there is sex. No, no, I I didn't. It's not an erotic film (laughs) (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a lot of sex scenes. It's like a sex, kind of a weird sex comedy about a Frankenstein monster. (laughs) Yeah, very fuckable Frankenstein for sure. Yeah, it's like yeah, basically the the premise is that Emma Stone is a is a woman who um commits suicide and then uh Dr. Frankenstein-ish character played by Willem Dafoe takes the brain of her unborn baby and implants it in her head and I don't, it's really weird. I'm making it sound bad. This is actually a very uh, you know, entertaining and in some ways accessible film even as it is kind of strange and avant-garde. Yeah. So there's that, and uh, you know, and, and Emma Stone is really amazing in in this movie. I mean, what what a, she's plays such a it's a very difficult character, you know, a, a grown woman with a baby's brain who rapidly matures <laughs> over the course of the movie. She fully commits. She fully commits physically and emotionally, and in terms of her gesticulations and her line deliveries and the the dialogue. I I, I got such a kick out of it. It's so funny. The the weird syntax. This tortured mentally developing brain version of tortured syntax, which I thought was hilarious. And she delivers it really wonderfully. But um, I don't know. On the one hand, the movie is very weird. On the other hand, it's actually very simple and and somewhat simplistic, I feel, in terms of what it's trying to say. And and frankly, it's 
it's one of these movies where it it wants to feel so woke. It's it's like a weird, it's like a male version of what female liberation looks like, which is mostly sex oriented, which it isn't. Yes, well, yeah, I, I agree. And there's, you know, I thought that it, it worked really well um, for the first half, and then out of nowhere, Bella Baxter, who is uh, Emma Stone's character, decides to go to work in a French whorehouse. Yeah. You know, in, in 18, in a, some kind of steampunk version of 1890s Paris. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and I just didn't like those, that part. You know, I didn't like the whorehouse scenes. I, did, I It felt very male fantasy to me. It's so Emmanuel, you know what I mean? It's such a throwback to the 70s, like cheesy erotic fiction about a woman's awakening. Yeah, and she learns the truth about reality by, you know, getting rammed up the ass by weird <laughs> Frenchmen. And, and I'm just I'm just like, really, does, did it really need to go to that extent? Because I thought the the part, well, there's this kind of Luché uh, lawyer guy played by um, Mark Ruffalo, who's very funny in, in this movie. And he, he kind of sweeps her away from her, her daddy and takes her on this world tour, and uh, they have a lot of se- sex, and you know she takes him as a, as a lover, basically. I thought that stuff was really quite funny, and their relationship is is twisted and hilarious, and I felt like that aspect of her coming of age worked, but then they had to go stick her in a whorehouse, and it wasn't just a couple of scenes either. I mean, they were in that uh, whorehouse for 30 or 40 minutes. They were in there for a very long time and and then spent a lot of time about her kind of like that's the real education she has into human nature and how men work and how women want to be. And, you know, speaks about the proletariat with her, you know, suddenly uh, she has a lesbian lover and you a know. lesbian socialist lover. I'm like, this is so Euro. I'm like, come on. You've got to be kidding me. Not only that, like beautiful lesbian socialist prostitute lover. And uh, black lesbian socialist prostitute lover. I'm like, come on. I mean, it's kind of box checking, which is weird and a little lazy for somebody like Yorgos Lanthimos, who's I, I I've always been kind of smitten by his movies and his approach to filmmaking because it's so sui generis. I've never seen a filmmaker with such kind of original ideas and such a strange, weird, wonderful, consistently weird way of of making a movie or telling a story and uh his movie his stories like the lobster for example that very odd premise of you know how you get to choose you want to you know all these people want to become other animals and they have to choose what animal they're going to be for the rest of their lives uh and then that has this kind of really strange and alluring way of opening up thematic ideas about longing and desire and human nature you know which i think is him at his best. And there are moments I think that work quite well. Like you're saying the Mark Ruffalo stuff is fantastic. Cause you have this rakish lawyer who thinks he knows better and he's the one who pushes, you know, the edges of society and propriety. And then he kind of meets his match very quickly with her and uh, suddenly reveals himself to be pretty bourgeois and pretty tame. Uh, despite the fact that he wants to think that he is something else. Yeah. That, that stuff's great. But then I feel like the twists the movie throws after that are, are, le- are less effective, but let you know. Let's again. Let's talk about what's good in this movie. You know, you have uh, Emma Stone giving an, a wonderful physical performance, and Ruffalo is very funny. Willem Dafoe is very good. There's a great dance scene. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious, hilarious dance, funniest dance scene since Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. You know, really, really good. And Emma Stone can can really dance, and uh, Ruffalo really commits to it as well. Also, you know, the production design of you know sort of the. Um, mythical steampunk fake victorian europe vibe was was very cool it, some of some of the scene design like reminded me of like 
odd avant-garde film, Guy Madden movies, that, that sort of thing. So there, there is a lot of creativity and imagination uh, in, in this. And it also, like, it does have, like, a, you know, a very well-rounded novelistic structure. The story, everything makes sense. And um, the weird hybrid animals are cool. So there's a lot of good stuff in it. But I, I just, I agree with you that, like, the the sort of coming of age in a French whorehouse thing is just, it's just bizarre. Well, but all the rest of it, too. And, you know, and all these men are clearly chauvinistic and stuck in their ways, but also, like, strangely inferior and insecure in a way that, like, seems to be true across the board. You know what I mean? Except for Godwin Baxter, the the surgeon, the brilliant surgeon the, who created... Uh, Bella or brought her back to life and and transplanted her brain and he's he had a horrible childhood that disfigured him emotionally and mentally and and physically he's got all these scars on his face and and he can't digest food he has to he has to have this contraption that allows him to make gastric juices and he bursts right. these weird bubbles for funny and also there's the Rami Youssef character uh, who's this sort of you know generally modern good-hearted beta male doctor who um you know is is betrothed to Bella and uh you know doesn't doesn't want to keep her back from her goals of like reading Goethe and becoming a scientist and I guess having a three-way with men in a French whorehouse I guess that's all that's all part of it when you're reading Goethe I mean right exactly I mean that's the thing like the Remy Youssef character who seems to be the pure-hearted guy uh you know character in the whole thing is really soft and doesn't seem very directed or motivated by anything. He just seems happy to be there. He's a cuck. He's a cuck. He's a bit of a beta cuck. And I don't, I don't (laughs) understand his deal or what his priorities are or what is important to him aside from just rolling with it and hanging out with Bella. And then Godwin is, you know, kind of contrite at the end. And I mean, is, is chill in the sense that his medical objectivity um, kind of prejudices him to want to let her do whatever the hell she wants you know, and not rein her in, which I suppose is good parenting in the sense of free range, but also bad parenting in the sense of really not weighing in with any sort of advice or insight into life. That's what I do. That's how I parent. So oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. You let your kids go off to brothels and things. I, I mean, I don't know. Probably. I, 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 I have no, I have no evidence that, that, that <laughs> they haven't been to brothels. Sorry. I just, I, you know, I have to say like watching poor things the first time it felt so fresh and strange and bold and original. I didn't know where it was going to go. And then once it came to its end, it felt, I was a little disappointed. And then I went back and saw it again, knowing where it ended and thought to myself, this is very basic. And I wasn't quite as charmed as I was the first time. So it, it it's a fun watch. It is a fun watch. It has a lot of, it, it has a style all its own and some and flash and vigor and will certainly uh, be nominated for many awards. Uh, but I, you know, I think your criticism is, uh, is apt and, and interesting and, um, you know, maybe we're just sexually jealous of, of Bella. Maybe, <laughs> I guess so. maybe that's it. Uh, apparently all women need to be liberated so that they can just have tons of sex because that's what women really want is the message the movie has. That's certainly Strangely. been my life experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> all right. It's fun to watch uh, weird Frankenstein Emma Stone have sex every 10 minutes. Uh, that is <laughs> that is poor things. It is in theaters now. And uh, Stephen and I, I mean, look, we had an interesting conversation about it. So you probably will, too. Yeah. Oh, amen. It's been a good year 
in television. I don't know if it's been a great year, a legendary year, but there's always a lot of excellent TV to discuss, and there's always a lot of terrible TV to discuss and to watch. Uh, the whole point of TV is that it's supposed to be terrible. It's not supposed to be good. The whole idea of good TV is, is a relatively uh, recent invention, at least, at least lots of good TV. But at Book of Film Globe, we cover the waterfront. We cover good and bad TV, and we've done our best of 2023 lists, and we've done our worst of 2023 list. And I have two of our finest television critics here with me today to talk about their choices on both of those lists. Omar Gayaga is here. Hello, Omar. Hey, Neil. Good to talk to you. And hello. And my occasional uh, substitute host, Scott Gold, has joined us. Always happy to be here. Y yes, uh, you're not in charge of this one, but maybe someday. Someday, Scott. Someday, Pollock. Someday. Someday, but not today is not that day. But we're gonna um, we're gonna start with Omar. Um, he submitted a few choices for the best of. We're gonna do best then worst. I think it's always good to start on a positive note, even though I find that people enjoy writing more about stuff they don't like. It really leads to some spectacularly uh, excellent criticism. But Omar, uh, you chose. Um, Several shows that you've written about for us before. Well, Reservation Dogs, which you and I talked about just a couple of months ago, made, made your best of list. And I, I, I don't know how much further we need to go into that, but uh, it's a deserved choice for sure. Yeah, it's one of those shows that, you know, it, it was entering its last season. We knew it was going to be over. And I, I found season three to be even more resonant, even better than the first two seasons, which, which you know, the first season's great. It's the second season as well. The third season, I thought, really landed in a way that was even more emotional and deeper and still funny. I think it's definitely one of those shows we're still going to be talking about 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah, and it's amazing that a show, um, well, A, it was able to cut itself off after three seasons and it stuck the landing. So many shows just kind of overstay their welcome and end up becoming sort of these faint glimmers of what they once were, or the uh, creators obviously have no way to end things. But on the other end, on the, on the end of shows just beginning, you picked The Last of Us, which was HBO Max's video game adaptation, which was widely praised by a lot of people, and not just you, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, this is not one I actually watched, um, because I, I just, I can't do deal with zombie apocalypses anymore. <laughs> Even if they're mushroom people, I still can't handle it. That's what a lot of us thought. A lot of us thought, what, one more zombie show? You know, the, the, the Walking Dead is still going. How is how is this going to, you know, how are they going to do anything differently? Well, I had played the video game, the original video game, and there's also a sequel to it that, that the next few seasons of this show will be based on. Um, but the first video game is fantastic. Great storytelling, great narrative, you know, very cinematic in a way where I, I thought if they just did a straight adaptation of that, it would probably work as a TV show. You know, it, it's already very cinematic. They went way beyond that. I mean, just in the casting, just in the storytelling, they have a whole episode with Nick Offerman, um, a, a gay love story in the middle of the apocalypse that is not in the game. And it was surprises like that. Things where were like, you weren't expecting them to go there. You weren't expecting them to to be even more emotional than, than the video game, which, which is pretty emotional in and of itself. So it was just sort of a perfect synergy of, of storytellers and story. And just at the right moment, uh, as we're just we were just coming out of the pandemic still, uh, and all of us were still thinking about viruses and and mold and spores, and you know it, it really felt like it hit at the right moment. You know, I I didn't. Uh, yeah, Scott. Oh, sorry about that. This is one Neil. You might not have missed. You might have missed it, but this is one that I actually also really really loved, and I'm kicking myself for not putting it on my best of list because I adored it, and I also really enjoyed the video games. And I think it's it currently sets the bar so high for video game adaptations, and it's given people a lot of hope for what 
video game adaptations can be in in a in a narrative series. And I think they just uh, they hit a home run with it. And I I found it as someone who loves the games, I found it such a fulfilling adaptation. Wow. All right. Well, the first really successful non-animated video game adaptation has arrived for adults. Uh, but Omar, you also you also wrote up Beef, and that is a uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's like a uh, surrealist road rage comedy drama set in uh, in the Asian American community of L.A. starring Stephen Yoon and um, and Ali Wong. And I I did like the show. Uh, I, I found it to be a bit much after a few episodes. It it veers in a lot of unexpected directions. It it gets much darker and and uh, you know kind of it's one of those shows a little bit like Succession where your your stomach is in a knot because you don't know what's going to happen next and and it and it's very tense and angry and uh, lot, you know bad things are coming. But uh, I, I thought it, it did a, it did a lot to dispel a lot of stereotypes about Asian Americans that they're that they're supposed to be calm and and helpful and subservient. I mean, these are these are two very angry individuals who go at each other, you know, hard. Uh, and and I thought Ali Wong in particular, you know, and, and Stephen Yeun is fantastic at everything. I mean, I, I don't think he's given a bad performance in anything that he's done. But uh, but Ali Wong was sort of the revelation here was that she can act. She's she was great in the show. Uh, I thought it was a very well put together. I, I hear what you're saying about Asian Americans. I mean, it's really an American show. It's about, you know, American class uh, tensions and uh, American anger and kind of American rage. And so I thought it was good. Again, like I just, it was like very, very rich. And I just, I couldn't eat the whole thing. Uh, but you did, you mentioned one show that I actually hadn't heard of, which is rare for me since I'll, I watch TV 22 hours a day. Um, there's a sitcom Primo on Amazon Prime's Freebie. Channel, I had never, I had never heard of Primo. Uh, Shay Serrano uh, of, of NPR fame is behind it. He's he's sort of the writer creator of it, and it's so smart and specific. It takes place in San Antonio, which if you've ever lived in San Antonio, it, it feels very San Antonio. Uh, and it's just about a kid, a teenager in a family where it's just his mom and his five cousins or five uncles, and the uncles are all very distinct personalities. They all bounce each off each other comedically in very fun ways. I don't know what it is about it that works so well, other than just it's very smartly written. It moves fast. It's got great performances. I haven't seen a sitcom that's impressed me and has been so confident out of the gate in a long time. I mean, it, it really works from the very first episode. And the episode number two, which I mentioned in, in the uh, review, uh, the cookout episode, second episode is already one of the best half hours of TV of the year. I mean, it's so funny and so well put together. Everyone I've shown it to is like, what is this show? This is this is so good. Where, how is this the first season of this show? Because it's already feels like like it's like it's among the best comedies on TV. And I can watch it on one can watch it on Amazon Prime, not just on Freebie. Right? Even if you don't have an Amazon Prime account, it's it's Freebie because it's free. So, so you can you, you sign up with Amazon Prime, but you don't have to have an Amazon Prime to, to watch it. And and the title Primo is that is that to refer to the is it the Spanish word for cousin or is it just like number one? I, I'm not no it, it, cousin gets okay. the podcast. All right. Very good. That sounds great. And I will put that on my list for sure. Let's, Scott, let's talk about your list a little bit. Uh, you, you led with the fall of the House of Usher, which you and I have already argued about on this program to a great extent. But you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to go to bat for it again. Absolutely. I am admittedly a Mike, fan, fan, a Mike Flanagan fanboy. Boy, that's a tongue twister right there. Mike Flanagan. A Mike fan, I'm a Mike Flanagan. And I love what he does. And especially, you know, we were talking about adaptations before, and he is just so good with taking particularly literary adaptations. You know, he did, you know, Shirley Jackson, obviously, and he's done Stephen King. And now he just decided to write this big, gory love letter to Edgar Allan Poe and just 
shoehorn every single Poe reference into one miniseries. And it sounds like it could be an absolute disaster, but for some reason he pulled it off. And obviously there are nitpicks and quibbles we could find, but overall I found it so enjoyable. There was great tension. I love the structure of it. And if you happen to like Edgar Allan Poe, you know, even beyond what you might have been required to read in, in middle school or high school, like you will find a lot of really fun Easter eggs and references. And you can really just tell that he just he just loves Edgar Allan Poe so much and just really dove straight into it. And it's got really sharp writing. There's some, you know, classic Mike Flanagan, you know, monologues by characters that are really, really satisfying and sharp and witty. And uh, I just I just found it just great popcorn fun for Halloween. I, I prefer a more uh, straightforward adaptation of Poe. Um, but again, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, I appreciate you going to bat for it because, you know, it's a very divisive show. There are people who love it like you do, and there are people who uh, who hate it. Meanwhile, your other two picks are anime, basically. Um, and William Schwartz, who's our fourth critic who wrote uh, for these best and worst pieces, uh, wrote up a show called Pluto, which is sort of an adaptation of Astro Boy. And he talked about scavenger's reign and you also talk about scavenger's reign and blue eye samurai and these are these are two shows that you pick as your best of the year yeah i didn't really intend to have two animated shows on my top three of the year but i found these two shows really really great particularly scavenger's reign which is a very original show with really great animation and there's really been nothing like it like it's so rare to find something that's genuinely unique, especially in animation and especially in science fiction. And the show depicts this alien world that really feels alien. Like you look at something like Avatar and you're like, oh, it's like a panther, but on, you know, but it has three eyes or it's like, uh, you know, it's like a pterodactyl. And it's like, it's like a whale, but it's, it's psychic. Yeah, right. So it's just, you know, they're, they're obvious analogs to everything we have on Earth. Whereas in Scavenger's Reign, the creatures, the flora and the fauna all of which are, you know, most likely trying to kill you, uh, just feel really alien and sometimes very beautiful. There's a there's a moment you get to see the whole life cycle of this one plant and alien kind of, you know, going through their life cycle. And it's just it's gorgeous and mesmerizing. And in the meantime, you know, you have this basic shipwreck survivor story of, you know, these four survivors on this planet trying to get back to their their ship to try and get rescued and everything goes wrong at every conceivable opportunity, which obviously makes for good drama. And it's just absolutely riveting. And if anything like this were tried in live action, number one, uh, it would look cheesy. And number two, it would probably just fail because it wouldn't capture whatever magic that Scavenger's Reign managed to bottle. All right, Scavenger's Reign. Uh, Scott Gold recommends it very highly. Let's talk about my list real quick. Um, well, looking back on it, I, I went pretty heavy on the comedy. I, I, I just, I guess, I'm just drawn to it. Um, I, I picked Succession, the final season of Succession, which is kind of an easy choice. Clearly, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, and I thought it really stuck the landing. Um, the way they handled the death of Logan Roy was extremely innovative and uh, the sort of cycle of grief that the kids went through felt very realistic and moving. And also just like the whole corporate succession struggle that was always the main point of the show just to me felt um, it finally, the plot finally kicked in once Logan died and then they could really sort of rocket forward and they weren't spinning in place anymore. So I really loved that. And then I also, uh, Omar, you, you mentioned regretting that you didn't pick Kunk on Earth for one of yours. 
Yeah, it was like, it, it seemed like it was, all of us were obsessed with Kung Earth for like two weeks and then it just completely disappeared from my memory. Right. But it was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. And I remember going and looking for some of the, because this was the first I'd heard of, of this show. And I went back and looked at, looked up some of the ones, you know, from, from England. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's funny. I mean, it's Charlie Brooker doing comedy and Diane Morgan's amazing in it. It's a great satire of British history documentaries. And, you know, Philomena Kunk, who's Diane Morgan's character, is just a, just a complete idiot. Uh, who somehow wanders through the halls of, of world history, interviewing all these academics and just asking them these these absurd questions. And it's just pitch perfect. I loved it. I also, this is kind of a controversial pick. I picked History of the World Part 2, which I realized was not that good. <laughs> I liked in a lot it. Of ways. I thought it was good. I liked it. Oh, sure. There were parts of it. I mean, the, the Curb Your Judaism sketch was one of the best bits of comedy I've ever seen. And there were other... There were other really classic, there's some great songs in it. It's not not all of it worked, but I, I was looking forward to the so, show so much that it was almost impossible for me to be disappointed by it. And I, I would say that I wasn't. I could have used maybe one or two fewer Shirley Chisholm sketches. Uh, that joke kind of got old. But I mean, there, there's some great stuff in it. And uh, I haven't watched it since, but it was so nice to finally see Jews in space, you know? Also, um, I, you know, I had to include I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, which did not disappoint in its third season. I mean, that's that's a show, unlike Kunk on Earth, where you can't get away from the driving crooner or egg game or um, the 55 burgers, 55 fries sketch. You know, that that stuff instantly entered uh, annoying frat boy quote territory. It's like the it's like the ultimate bro quote show. So I don't I mean, and I know, Omar, I know you're a big fan and you introduced me to the show uh, back in season one. I've quoted the table sketch so many <laughs> and yeah. sent it as a gif to so many people. Yeah. Uh, ta- tables. Uh, I also loved um, the Black Mirror, not the whole Black Mirror season, but I loved Joan is Awful, which we've talked about on the show before, which is the Annie Murphy starring episode that sort of satirized Netflix and, um, you know, artificial intelligence. And I, when Black Mirror is good, it really taps into the zeitgeist in a way that other shows don't. And I loved that. And then, you know, I also talk about what we do in the shadows Gen V, which was, I thought, a very fun um, analog to the boys. It, it kind of made fun of the teen superhero genre very well. And I also, I really liked uh, Justified City Primeval and Reacher. I have, I, maybe I'm I'm a dad. I mean, we're all dads, right? <laughs> dad TV. Yeah. That is the old, right, Scott? I mean, you, maybe you're not watching this kind of dad TV. I love this kind of dad TV. I mean, Jack, there's no one like Jack Reacher. You know, it's, it's so funny. Like, we turned it on. The other night, my wife was like, you're going to watch Reacher. And then it, it took five minutes. It took five minutes <laughs> for her to put down her laptop. And she's just sitting there saying, I love him. I love him. He was Aquaman on Smallville way, way back in the day. And I remember him. I remember him thinking, like, who's this lunghead? He's, he has done very well for himself. Yeah. He was also, uh, yeah, Alan Richardson. He was also Hawk in Haw- of Hawk and Dove in uh, Titans, which is another DC show. And he was he was very magnetic. He really holds the screen. And, you know, Justified City Primeval, Timothy Oilfin has been playing this character, this Raylan Givens character, for, for many years. And this was kind of a fun... It was like an airport novel. They basically stuck Raylan Givens in the middle of one of Elmore Leonard's Detroit crime novels. They kind of fused the two together. And I just I just thought, uh, you know, it wasn't great. It's, both these shows, like, they kind of go on a bit too long, but they're just like... They're basically just like you sit down on the plane, you got to fly for three or four hours and you read them. And that's kind of what they felt like. You know, you don't have to think too hard. There's enough wit and scene setting. And it's just to me like it's it, I, you don't see enough TV like that. 
So uh, good stuff all around. Um, let's talk about uh, bad TV now. Um, Omar, you as you, as you uh, have sort of been not apologizing, but like kind of qualifying <laughs> on social media, you, you didn't pick the worst shows of the year, really. You picked shows that you wanted to be better than they were. Yeah, because I don't watch a lot of bad TV, honestly. I, I don't have the patience for it. I, I will not sit through, you know, if I get through half an episode and it's awful, I'm just going to turn it off. So I, I don't really yeah. have a lot of bad TV that I watched this year. So what I settled on was disappointing TV. The first of those was I'm a Virgo, which was uh, Boots Riley's. Uh, and I, and you're going to probably see this show on some best of lists. There's some people that were really into it. And I, and I remember as, when it came out, people were like, this show's amazing. I, I would urge those people who said it was amazing after the first two episodes to, to fit, try to finish the show because it, it's almost impossible to finish. Uh, it just really degenerates into some some superhero like what the boys does, but dumb and not and not refined and not great. Just a really clunky version of what the boys tries to do with with, with the satire of the superhero genre. Well, let's talk about the uh, another one of your picks, the other two. That's another one. Yeah, it's another one where I, any other year would have been on my best of list because you know, the first two seasons I thought were brilliant. Maybe it's just me because I, 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 again, I see this show showing up on some year end lists as one of the best of the year. Uh, I thought the comedy curdled on that show. I thought it really got nasty and mean spirited. Um, and the first two seasons were about these strivers who were really trying to kind of ride the coattails of the of their um, teen, teen pop sensation brother yeah they're justin bieber like brother who who himself is very sweet and you know they're just trying to like make a name for themselves and then they finally do this season and then they turn into assholes <laughs> like real assholes yeah and, and and chase dreams the brother kind of takes a, a serious back seat and ken marino the manager character who's also very funny in the first two seasons also kind of takes a backseat. Well, also their mother played by Molly Shannon becomes this like super Oprah type character. And I, I just, I, I agree with you, but I thought there was still some great satire and some good set pieces in, in the other two, but I do agree that uh, it was less compelling um, once the, the siblings um, are no longer underdogs. It, it got very hard to relate to the show uh, when everybody was, you know, had a gajillion dollars and was successful and, and acting like assholes like that. It, well, I think only Succession gets away with that. <laughs> That's the only show that can pull that off. Right. It got a little boring. All right. So let's talk about these reboots. You put Frasier on your list, which, you know, it's it was met with um, a mixed reception. I would say the new Frasier episodes. A little shruggy, a little shruggy reception. <laughs> no one, I didn't hear anybody passionate about it. I heard people say like, eh, it's okay. You know, it's all right. I didn't hear anybody raving that it was great or that it was anywhere close to the original, you know, and I loved Frasier. I love the original Frasier. I, I think it's in the hall of fame of sitcoms and this just did not measure up to that. It was nothing close to what the Frasier name has stood for, for since the nineties. I, I chose uh, two other shows that were revivals night court. They're making new night court episodes and uh, that nineties show, which is essentially that seventies show. No, but the kids of the original, but a lot of the original cast is still shows up. In, in that 90s show and you know at least Frasier was good in its heyday you know but I mean no one's gonna really argue that Night Court was particularly good uh it was all right the first it, when it was uh yeah it was all right some people have some nostalgia for it because it was on TV <laughs> you know it was like it was part of that golden age of NBC sitcoms it was on Thursday nights along with the Cosby show and Family Ties and Cheers and 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 they brought it back which is which is crazy uh and then they also and also I understand that that 70s show was was a, a good launching pad for uh, some questionable celebrities, Danny Masterson being the most questionable of them all. But, you know, 
I, it wasn't that good. It was never that funny. And bringing, I feel like bringing these two shows back to, to me just felt like saying, well, we used to watch TV. So here are some things that used to be on TV. Reboots rarely work. So Scott, we're going to, um, we're going to talk about uh, your tastes in a pop culture tend to run more toward the sci-fi and the fantasy. And uh, you had nothing but mean spirited things to say about season three of The Witcher. I think I might have picked one or two nice things about it, but overall, yes, complete disaster. It's really (laughs) not even a train crash. It was like, you know, some sort of apocalyptic event. Like, it's just amazing to watch something with a fan base that's so supportive and so in love and so supportive of, you know, the first season of the TV show, the fans were like, all right, you know, this is pretty cool. Henry Cavill, Geralt of Rivia, amazing character, amazing performance, very physical, totally, you know, we totally buy that he's that character. And to watch what the producers did with that show over the next two seasons to the point where even Cavill himself is like, you know what, guys, if you aren't taking this seriously, I'm out. They just really screwed this one up in so many different ways. Like they were trying to do too many different things, please too many masters. And the result was just such a just a shrug like this should be a really riveting, exciting fun show and to watch it become a show that you're just like eh and you just kind of you know like doesn't keep your attention it's just it's mind-boggling how they were able to actually accomplish that yeah it's not coming back the witcher is not i mean it is coming back without henry cavill but it's not coming back from its heyday uh oh, I, no. we, we can all be pretty sure of that um let's talk real quick because we already discussed this on the show before secret invasion the uh, marvel show um about uh, the kree scroll war it was so turgid so dark and grim and and just humorless there was no humor at all it was really bad and it was sort of the um it wasn't the final nail in the mcu's coffin the mcu isn't going anywhere but it was it was the moment where people just kind of threw up their hands and and said enough with this marvel shit already yeah i agree you know it was uh you know if there was one word i could think of in my head about you know my feelings summing up secret invasion it's, it was a bummer in so many ways like it was a bummer because the show was glum and humorless it was a bummer because it was a marvel product and of course i you know eat marvel products like skittles and it's like it's, it's it was like getting a you know a, a shoe flavored skittle it's like ah oh, that's a bummer uh speaking of eat, speaking of eating i don't you know you're <laughs> you're a food writer or you have been a food writer in, in a past life i don't know if you watch a lot of cooking shows i don't watch i used to watch a lot of cooking shows but i don't watch as many cooking shows now the best cooking show on tv that i saw of the past year was the bear Yes. Yes. And that's for some reason, the bear didn't make any of our list, but obviously like the bear deserves to be at the top of or near the top of most people's uh, best. You know, it's not, it's a, uh, it's TV legend at this point, but the one I picked as my, one of my worst shows was something called Bobby's triple threat. And it's, it's, it takes the Bobby Flay challenge model, but Bobby Flay is no longer the main chef. He is now hanging out in this lounge, drinking martinis, I don't even know why they're doing it. And you just see this over and over again on the Food Network. It's like the same people cooking in different configurations against each other. So it really pissed me off. Just, just I, I, I threw up my hands on that. There's a reason why Padma Lakshmi is leaving Top Chef after 20 seasons. Because, I mean, the genre has really burned itself out. Um, and I also, did either of you watch the Squid Game reality show? I made it through half of the first episode and bailed. I saw I bailed at the trailers, man. <laughs> I watched the whole thing. I watched the whole thing real late at night. I would like start it at midnight and like sat there sometimes actually eating chips, but consuming it like a bag of chips. It was just horrible for me at 
made me feel really sick, but I couldn't stop until I got to the bottom. And I mean, that show had no bottom because it took Squid Game, which I mean, you, I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. loved Squid Game. Oh, yeah. 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 That's why I watched the this show. One of the great TV shows of all time. And it had the sets and it had the costumes. But, you know, obviously no one was being killed. It was like a reality show based on Squid Game. So real, real disaster. Just a really bad moment in TV history. And yeah, they're going to make a second season. It was incredibly popular. I mean, everyone wants to be a part of it because you technically can win $4.6 million. It, it feels like with Netflix con- content like this, if we're still talking about it a week or two after it, you know, after it debuted, like they've won. Oh, they've you won. Know, it doesn't matter if it's good or if it's good or bad, if it's well received or not. It's coming back. I mean, we'll never be rid of this. This is Squid Game now, although they are making a second season of the fictional show, too. But they really um, they really soiled the brand with this. Um, so th- we've gone on for quite a while. But I, I do want to mention some shows that William Schwartz uh, put in, in his worst of uh, list. Um, Hunters, which was an Al Pacino show on Amazon Prime about hunting Nazis. Uh, Citadel, which was an, a- an action show that uh, was very expensive to make and made no money. Uh, Apple TV's Strange Planet, which was an animated adaptation of a webcomic that sounds horrible. All the Light We Cannot See, which is a miniseries that adapted uh, Anthony Dora's book. And, uh, you know, so, somewhat surprisingly, but I was I was I thought his analysis of this was very interesting. The final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is an example of a show that was once considered quality TV and then sort of by the end was was really not. So I don't know if any of you had any experience with any of those programs. Skipped them all. <laughs> <laughs> I watched, you know, like, uh, you know, just like, just like Omar. I, you know, if I watch a couple of episodes and if I'm not digging it, like, I'm not going to invest my time. Like, I don't have a lot, a lot of time to watch TV these days. And I'm going to, there's so much TV out there that I'm going to do my best to try and pick good TV, which is not always easy. But Hunters, I had high hopes for. I mean, who doesn't love a good Nazi hunting story? But it just, it really fell flat for me. And I was like, oh man, like, Talk, you mean we we're talking about bummers before it's like oh you're, you're making nazi hunting boring come on guys like you can do better than that it just makes me so sad scott to hear you say you don't have time to watch tv life is tv <laughs> i still watch it even though i don't have time you know like yeah well that's good i that that's that's the spirit that's the book and full globe spirit i do nothing but watch tv i have nothing but time well you know you you both still have are still raising your children i have raised my child and so now I can, I, now I, now I am like, I am the epitome of dad TV. And in fact, as we're talking, I'm going to, I'm going to hang up with you guys uh, and I'm going to go watch Reacher. I think I might too. You should, you, have you, you should, I, I'm still on season one, to be honest. Season one's I'm great. Just, uh, high, you know, high hopes for season two. I haven't started it yet. He is the ultimate uh, dad icon. And also the, he's the, he's the one dad icon you can also watch with your spouse or your girlfriend. And the, there's something there for her too. In the form of abs. Yeah, it's it's not Bosch. <laughs> no, <laughs> much tougher sell that one. <laughs> no, no, it is it is definitely not Bosch. It's not even Monk, uh, which is also back with a with a new uh, made for TV movie. But anyway, TV goes on. It will go on into twenty twenty four. And Omar Gayaga and Scott Gold, I, I thank you so much for your excellent contributions to the site this year, and I look forward to working with you in the new year as well. Y'all, y'all take it easy, and don't forget to watch TV. This is fun. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. All right. Thank you so much, Omar Gayaga and Scott Gold, for talking to me about some of the best and worst TV shows of 2023. We really, we scratched about 0.5% of the surface of all TV content. You can't watch all the TV 
that exists. Uh, I don't, even if there were 10 of you, you couldn't watch all the TV that exists. But that's why you have Book and Film Globe and why you have critics to sort of help you filter things and to warn you about things you shouldn't watch and to turn you on to things that maybe you should be watching. And that is the whole point of Book and Film Globe, to provide a critical perspective on our vast and exciting world of popular culture and of literature. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor of that fine site, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I am the host of this fine podcast. We will be back in 2024 with more exciting and excellent episodes. I look forward to talking to you then. Happy New Year, everyone. Please spend as much time watching TV as you possibly can. Original production.